Well, we're in the book of Mark, and we've been in the book of Mark for a while. And as you know, uh, if you're looking for the book of Mark and you're not familiar with the Bible, turn to the middle, get to the beginning of the New Testament, go past the first book, which is Matthew, and you're right in in Mark, and we're in the 12th chapter. And has been the case over the last few weeks, we're in the last week of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. And Jesus has been confronted by a series of different religious leaders. They've challenged him. They've tested him. They've tried to catch him and trip him up. They've tried to prove him uh, to be unworthy and, and foolish. They've tried to discredit him to the people around. And they've got a good audience because they're at the temple and it's Passover and there's people from all over the known world that have gathered in Jerusalem. So there's quite an audience. And as we learned last week, the opponents last week were the Pharisees and the Herodians. And what was ironic about that is that these two groups didn't get along, but they did get along when it came to trying to discredit Jesus. And so this has been a a continual theme. During the three years of Jesus' public life, he proved to be attractive and compelling, courageous and peaceful and wise and powerful and loving. And isn't it strange, the amount of discomfort and negativity that followed him. Now, to be sure, he had a following, and there were people who were hung on every word, but there was a, a continually growing group of people that wanted to get rid of him, wanted to marginalize him, wanted to discredit him. And those attitudes still exist today. How many of you have noticed that when you're in a room, it's okay to talk about a higher power, the man upstairs, it's okay to talk about God, but when you mention Jesus... The temperature in the room changes. People get a little edgy and uncomfortable. Have you noticed that? Can I see some heads nodding? Why do you think that is? What is it about Jesus? The greatest man, the smartest man, the most loving man that ever walked this planet has so much opposition, so much discomfort. Well, one possibility, and and perhaps it's the main one, is those of us who call ourselves Christ followers haven't done a very good job of representing him. I'll bet some of you, some of you have heard someone say, I'm never going to work, I'm never going to do any business with a Christian ever again in my life. Have you heard that? I know I've heard that a number of times. We don't do a very good job of representing this this person of Jesus. In Slovakia, when we were there, we lived there for 12 years, and and we've been back now for a few. The Archbishop of the Catholic Church was later discovered to have been an informant under communism. And what was worse is once that became public, they chose not to replace him. So he continued in that position. Not a very good look for Christians. And those of us who have professed the following Jesus have all too often sold out to the very things that Jesus spoke out against. So even within our own community, there's an element of hypocrisy. And, and God forgives, and, and he loves us, and he gives us a, a chance to start over. But it's sad but true that we've not done a very good job of, of, of representing Jesus in the world. Another reason that I would suggest... Um, that uh, Jesus made people uncomfortable and still does is because Jesus not only brought light upon things that 
the power brokers and religious leaders would rather keep hidden. But Jesus was the light. Jesus is the light. And where Jesus is, things get exposed. They get brought to the light. Jesus called himself the light of the world. And Jesus calls people to repentance, to turn around and reorient your life to the direction that is, that is going to give you the best possible life because he is the good shepherd. And he encouraged the crowd to follow him because he is the way. And last week, Jesus wisely sidestepped another gotcha question by the religious leaders because he is the truth. This week, Jesus is dealing with another attempt to make him look bad. His response is consistent with the fact that he is the resurrection. So as we turn to our text this morning, we're going to take a look at another attempt to discredit Jesus. Happens in the temple, happens in front of a crowd. And you know, I find it interesting having walked through this section of scripture and, and looked at Matthew and Mark, or, or Matthew and Luke's account, to see that this was a, the last few days of Jesus' life. It takes place at the temple, and Jesus is continually being scrutinized. He's continually being they're trying to find some fault with him. They're trying to limit and minimize and, and actually nullify his effect on the crowd and the people. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, is being examined. And I believe Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all presenting us with this examination process to try to find some fault with him at the very time that the sacrificial lambs were being brought to the temple and being examined to see if they are worthy of the sacrifice. It's interesting to me that that lays over the top of what was actually going on in the temple ritual. It's as if the writers are trying to show us that Jesus is the spotless lamb of God and worthy to go to the cross and die. And with that, let's turn to our text. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. <clears throat> then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a, brother, a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no, but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. And now, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, and the God of, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So this time we don't have the Pharisees, we don't have the Herodians, we have the Sadducees. We know very little about the Sadducees from their own writings because they didn't leave us anything. 
But we do learn about them from the other Jewish sects. We learn that they were the primary ruling party of the Sanhedrin. They were oversaw the temple. They were from the upper class. And they held a very narrow view of Scripture. They, they honored the Torah, the five, first five books of the Old Testament, but they didn't, they didn't validate or believe in the prophets. So the only thing that they had as a Bible was the first five books of, of the Old Testament. So they were quite conservative that way, but they were quite liberal in the sense that they, um, they were friendly with Rome. They had, they had a relationship with Rome, a convenient relationship with Rome. So they saw nothing in the Torah, those five, first five books of the Old Testament, that would validate the idea of a resurrection, so they rejected it. And that says that in our text. So because they had rejected the resurrection, and because our text even points it out, this question they're asking Jesus is kind of a snarky, sarcastic question, because everybody knew they didn't believe in the resurrection. It was not a disingenuous question, but it was designed to, to, for him to struggle with and make him look foolish. So with relish, the Sadducees jumped to the final question at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? And behind this question is kind of a flawed assumption that we'll get to in just a minute, that the idea of somehow that life in the resurrection will be like life here on earth. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But Jesus goes on an attack. He's a pit bull in this one. Okay? He goes on an attack, and he responds with, not just with words, but he responds with a literary device designed to bring ba-boom, like really nail them. The literary device is called a chiasm. It comes from the word, Greek word chi, which is an X. And you're going to see this. I want to put it on the screen. It's a brilliant response with the added punch of this literary device. So let's take a look at it. He says, you are in error. Planeo is the word. You do not know scriptures. You do not know the power of God. And that's going into the, the, the Akai. And now it comes out. The result of the power raises the dead and they become like angels. And the testimony of scripture is the bush passage. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Present tense, not past tense. You are badly mistaken, Planeo. Now, with this response, we get an unusual, an interesting response from some of the religious leaders that were there observing who were actually opposed to Jesus and trying to trip him up themselves. But in Luke's record of this passage, we see some, one of the religious leaders giving Jesus a high five. Okay, it goes like this. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions. Okay. So he gets a high five, probably from the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection. So Jesus is supporting their position, but that's as far as it goes. This story in the life of Jesus is recorded for us, as I said, in all three of the Gospels. And whenever I see that, I wonder, I wonder to myself, why, why did all three of them find this story to be important enough to include, include it? Well, I can see at least three things, and there's probably more, but, <clears throat> but three, three things that I think we can learn from. The first is, Jesus is pointing out the absolute importance of the Scripture and the power of God or the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about how critical this is. That answer that he gives to these religious leaders is like a mic drop answer. 
to a religious person that's built their whole life around there. He says, you don't believe in the scriptures in this instant. You don't believe in the power of God. It's like, how in the world? Well, um, they didn't understand their own texts, at least as it relates to this issue. And they underestimated the power of the very God they said they served. The word of God and the power of God. It's pretty important stuff, especially if you're in the religion business. And to me, it was, it was for them, he made them look really bad, like, like, a real, like a swing and a miss, like a strikeout with the bases loaded and the winning run on third, and you have to walk back to the dugout. They were walking back to the dugout, hanging their heads. But before we pick up stones to throw at them, this is something that we can all be guilty of. The German theologian Karl Barth stood in front of his congregation and he picked up his Bible and he threw it on the floor and he said, this is nothing but paper and ink apart from the Holy Spirit. And he's right. It's a pattern. In fact, it's a pattern that's in the book and it's always been in the book It's a pattern that goes back to the temple and the tabernacle that God instructed them to build. And we're going to take a look at that for a minute. You're going to see this pattern that the Sadducees would have known but had somehow ignored. You see, the tabernacle and temple were the place where God's presence resided, you know, in the Holy of Holies behind the thick curtain. It was a place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was a place to meet with God. And there were a series of stations you went through to get to the place where God's presence existed. Let's look at the first one. So at the bottom, you see the door. This is the biblical typology of the tabernacle, the door. We know who the door is now, but the door, then there was the outer court, and that was the brazen altar. This was where the sacrifices were burned that the people brought as a sacrifice for sin. Then there was the brazen labor. This was the the washing, the water. They were cleansing. They cleansed themselves after being involved in the blood sacrifices. They had to go through that ritual, that mikvah ritual of cleansing in order to go into the inner court. This was the holy place. And when they went into the inner court, on the left-hand side was the golden candlestick, which which kept burning because of the oil that was in the candlestick. And then on the right side was the table of showbread. And you can see the typology here, the oil, the Holy Spirit, the showbread, the Word of God. And then they went to the altar of incense. This was praise and worship and the intercessions of the saints, which was constantly being burned and offered up before God before entering into the Holy of Holies with the veil. This This was the pattern But you see, as you walk straight in line into the Holy of Holies, we can look at the next picture now. You walk straight in line in the Holy of Holies. Everything is in order. Everything is in a direct order into the presence of God except the candlestick and the Word of God. Okay, it's the oil, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God, which are on each side. So as you walk into the presence of God, you walk right between them. Because you see, there is an importance of the Word of God and the power of God being in balance. If you turn to the right and you turn your back on the candlestick and you absorb yourself in the word and you don't have the influence and the illumination and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's just a book of paper and ink. And if you turn the other way and you turn your back on the word and you just involve yourself in the work of the Holy Spirit and whatever feels good and is inspired, it isn't structured by the illumination of the word. 
You get in error. You never get to where you're going. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying to, the, to, to these people here. You don't understand. They work together. They work in harmony. You know, as we read the word, it's important for us to go to the word and not treat it as a textbook, greet it as, as, as special written words that were inspired by the Holy Spirit and must be interpreted by the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural engagement as we come to the word of God. Well, there's something else I think we can take away from this, and that is to correct a common mistake. And I had mentioned it earlier briefly that the Sadducees made this common mistake with their absurd question. They were imagining heaven and resurrection through human earthly terms. Jesus gives a glimpse of heaven when he talks about, the, you know, when he talks about angels and, and not marrying, but he doesn't go into great detail. But let's be honest. Let's just be honest for a minute. We're a lot like the Sadducees. We want to know, don't you? We want to know what heaven is like. We're, we're you know, we're the movies and the books and um, near-death experience examining, we're always trying to kind of poke through that veil and see what's on the other side. <clears throat> we tend to evaluate heaven through our, the lens of our human experience. We've all wondered what it's like. Pause for just a second. What are some of the questions you have about heaven? What are some of the questions that come to mind? Will I know my family and friends? Will I know them? What will we do there? What do we do? Um, will I be able to fly? <laughs> you thought about that? Okay. Will I be able to sing on key? For some of us, that's a big deal. <laughs> Will I still have big ears? <laughs> Will I have hair? Clothes? What about animals and pets? Have you ever thought about that? I'm pretty sure there'll be dogs, but I'm not sure about cats. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but these are all legitimate questions have one thing in common. We're turning heaven into an experience that we've had on earth. We reduce it to our level of understanding. And, and that's natural, it's logical, and it's kind of fun to poke around at it. But, but that's about as far as we should go. Because we could land in where the, where the Sadducees were. Uh, here's what I can tell you. This is what I know for sure from the scripture. Think about the best possible thing you can think of what heaven is going to be like. The best thing you can come up with. And know this. It's going to be better. It's going to be better. It's going to be better than anything you can think or imagine. We read that in Ephesians 3.20 in the message. God can do anything you know far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. So get your wildest dreams out there and then know it's better. No, it's going to be better. The final reason I believe this story is preserved for us in the three Gospels is this. It's subtle, it's, but it's in there for me to point to Jesus. As I said, we make our attempts to understand what the resurrection will be like. We describe it in human terms. But when it comes to our questions, we shouldn't look to Hollywood. We shouldn't look to books. We shouldn't even look to our own imagination 
The answer is not found there. The answer is found in a person. The answer is Jesus. It's not ours to figure out. It's what he has prepared. It's ours to trust in the one who is the resurrection and the life. We trust from that place of faith which has been given to us as a gift that rises up and allows us to say with conviction, I believe. I believe in Jesus who is my life. I believe in Jesus who is my resurrection. And that's what this table in front of us is all about. It's a table of remembrance and it's a table of invitation. We remember what Jesus did, his triumph over death, and we remember more than that. We remember how he did it. Yes, he triumphed over death, but how did he triumph over death? He made a conscious decision to obey his father's plan and purpose. His obedience proved his love for his father. His obedience affirmed his perfection. His obedience resulted in him completing his mission. His obedience brought the word of God and the power of God together. And it changed everything. The veil separating the Holy of Holies from the inner court or the holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. It opened the way for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon everyone, everywhere. Jesus' obedience opened up the way for everyone to come to this table. The Lord's table is about remembering the way of Jesus. And the table is an invitation, an invitation to follow in his steps. We accept his invitation to be part of his body, representing him in the world around us when we take the wafer. We're not just taking a wafer, we're taking a wafer, and with that wafer, we're saying, I'm gonna be a part of what you're doing in the world, Jesus. I'm gonna be a part of the body of Christ, and this is my part, and I'm gonna do it. And then we declare, with, with, uh, when we receive the, 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 the juice, the wine, we declare that <clears throat> we will make whatever sacrifices are necessary to accomplish his mission of love in the world. We will make the sacrifice of obedience to make it possible for that mission to be accomplished. That's the invitation of the Lord's table. Since you have affirmed your faith in Christ Jesus, something that already exists in your heart, then receive the elements at this table. And when you receive them, rise up and go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Be the light and, and salt and life that represents Jesus well in the world. You see, Jesus did the heavy lifting so that we could live boldly and courageously, not fearing death, because what's waiting us on the other side of death is something so far beyond our imagination, we can't even imagine it. For it's true that to lose our life is not to lose anything, but to gain everything. It's the beginning of a whole new form of existence, an incredible new life, far, far, far beyond anything we can begin to imagine. And can we, can we get an amen, Charlie? Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so as we go to the table of our Lord, I'd like the communion stewards to come forward at this time to prepare us. This is the Lord's table. It's open to all. The elements we're about to receive, make, if they make sense to you, 
If you're united with Jesus by faith, then this table is for you. And if you'd like to make that declaration of faith in Jesus for the first time, this is a perfect place to do it, to come forward and affirm that that faith has risen up in you and you believe. So when the musicians begin to play, you can make your way around to the stations. They'll be situated in different places and corners of the room as well as up in the balcony. When you receive, the, when you receive the, the bread or the wafer, dip it into the cup. Everything is gluten-free, so you don't have to worry about which station to go to. And if you're with a small child and you'd like to have your child receive a blessing as opposed to the elements, just let them know, and they'll give a blessing. Paul is the one who, who told us uh, in his letter to the Corinthians that he received of the Lord that which he passed on to us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after he'd given thanks, he he broke it and he said, this is my body. And by the way, folks, we naturally tend to say, this is my body which is broken for you, but you don't find that in the Bible. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is given to you, given to you to be a part of. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as, often as you drink this. Do this in remembrance of me. And that cup is what broke the power of sin and death and gives life everlasting to each of us. So Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the example that you set. Thank you for the invitation that you give. Thank you for inviting us to partner with you in this crazy thing called life. And thank you for making a way for us to live courageously because we have nothing to fear. We pray your blessing upon these elements as we receive them. May they bring life to our spirit and our soul and our body. May we go with energy to accomplish the mission you've called us to. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.